0: Hi everyone. My name is Jared Monshine. I am a senior fellow here at the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney. And uh, before we begin today, want to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. Uh, the University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Um, I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country in which you are on, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. And we are here today to discuss an exciting topic. Um, Victoria Cooper, a research associate here at the USA Center, has recently published a report entitled Key Players in the Biden Administration. And she published that last month. And we have a panel discussion here um, that, that we're going to get to in a second. Um, but before I get to that, just want to firstly uh, give everyone the bios of who is uh, speaking today. Um, as I said, you have myself, I'll be moderating the discussion today. but we're joined by Victoria and uh, she recently completed a Bachelor of Arts majoring in Politics and International Relations and American Studies from the University of Sydney. We were also joined by Bruce Wolpe who is a uh, non-resident senior fellow at the U.S. Studies Centre and Bruce is a regular contributor on U.S. politics across uh, media platforms in Australia. In recent years he's worked with Democrats in Congress uh, during the uh, President Obama's first term in office, and then on the staff of Prime Minister Julie Gillard. Uh, he also served as the former uh, Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. And uh, so that is the formal bios, but I just informally, I'll say Victoria, joins the U.S. Studies Center three months ago today and has been an excellent um, addition to the team. And uh, Bruce Wolpe is uh, literally the, the top expert in the country on uh, U.S. politics, especially related to uh, Congress. And so we are really uh, lucky to have both of them here today. Um, we want to get to the substance of today about um, key players in the Biden administration. But given the news that that really um, that that awoken a lot of us uh, uh, nerds about US politics, myself included, uh, that happened overnight. We wanna quickly just talk about that and the uh, Biden-Putin summit. So I'll first go to Bruce um, to give us a, a quick uh, overview of what, what he saw were key takeaways from that. Uh,
1: thank you so much, Jared. And Victoria, it's terrific that you joined the center. It's really uh, just so excited about being with you today and having a discussion on your report, which was just terrific. Um, on the summit, and thank you, Jared, very much, just a few points, uh, takeaways that I uh, had in, in, observing, in observing it and the press conferences and so forth. First, I think it accomplished what Biden wanted to achieve, that he, d- he did what he came there to do, which was three things. Where uh, the United States and Russia can practically work together, they should. Um, if provoked, the United States will respond. And third, he communicated U.S. values and priorities and what the United States stands for and how they're not going to take a subordinate or secondary role to other uh, issues between the two countries. Uh, So for Putin, what did he get? Uh, He could get a clear reading on Biden, how strong and resolute Biden is. I mean, uh, uh, they're both reading each other. Uh, Putin is an expert at it, and I'm sure he really absorbed everything that Biden was saying and making assessments about it. And he could also let Biden know what was uh, important and what were priorities for him and for Russia. Um, Success or failure from the meeting today can't be judged today. It can be judged in the next six to nine months. Um, Are cyber attacks received, you know, Biden laid out several things that he expected of Russia. So will cyber attacks emanating from Russia recede? Is Ukraine less threatened? Is there progress on um, uh, strategic stability and arms control? Is Syria quieter? So we'll see if those things are, in fact, realized over the next few months. And for, for Biden, what that represents is a sort of uh, not flipping Reagan on his head, but where Reagan said trust but verify, Biden is saying verify and then trust. In other words, if, if Putin delivers or acts in a way that is different from what it has been to date, well, that can be verified, and then we can trust him a little bit more. And then in thinking in historical terms, other summits, how they went, what came out of it, for two generations, uh, the summits were dominated by the threat, imminent threat of nuclear war, the real danger of it. This was a little bit different. We're not in a post-nuclear era at all. You have Iran, you have North Korea, and you still have major arsenals between the West and the East, and they're still poised at each other, but it's styled down a few notches so far. But in thinking about, so it's not Reagan and Gorbachev and and it's not um, Bush and uh, seeing the emergence of uh, uh, Yeltsin or Clinton and Yeltsin, it's, it's a different generation. But what did this remind me of? This reminded me of 1961 and Khrushchev going to Vienna and meeting with Kennedy. And Khrushchev's reading of Kennedy was that he was young, inexperienced, and not tough. And he concluded from, and Kennedy was shaken coming out of that meeting. The reporting on that what didn't emerge until some time later. But that perception of Kennedy led to Khrushchev saying, I can be strong against the United States. Remember, they were in a competition for world domination and what system was going to prevail. And uh, so Khrushchev concluded, I can beat this guy. And he put missiles in Cuba. And it led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we will know over the next six to nine months whether we're in a new gener- a truly new generation of American leadership with the Russians or whether something else has occurred. So that's kind of my initial
0: reading of the summit a few hours after it concluded. Great, thank you, Bruce. Um, Victoria, did you want to add anything to that?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd really add, and I think this is potentially a perspective from the key players in the Biden administration, but I think what this summit indicates is that um, Biden's per- uh, particularly dedicated to, uh, I guess, um, a return to stability and to uh, reducing risk and to making uh, the state of international affairs more predictable. And I think that kind of came up, I think the word used was to establish some guardrails or some playing rules, uh, especially in regard to cybersecurity. So I think by that we can say that one of the priorities of the Biden administration is a return to predictability.
0: Perfect, that's (laughs) great. And that is a perfect segue to then give a sort of overview of Your, your write-up that you did for us that was extensive and profiled some of the key people that joined Biden in the room in his uh, head-to-head with, uh, with Putin. So floor is yours, Victoria.
2: Great. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, uh, as Jared said, I'm Victoria Cooper. I'm a research associate here at the United States Study Center. And I am so excited to be here and to talk about the key players in the Biden administration. As Jared said, it is extensive. Um, we profiled 15 people um, and looked at Uh, who these people are, what their roles are, what can be expected from them and what they achieved in the first hundred days. And we did that with this particular focus on um, the implications that these players may have for Australia. So why do this report? Why why is there a need for this? And I think um, it speaks to the nature of anticipation and uncertainty and Yeah, I guess the attention that comes with new presidents, I think um, in America, there's always a lot of anticipation around Inauguration Day. We always uh, overseas want to see how it's going to go. And we're, I guess, rifling through the entrails of Washington, trying to get any kind of sign or strong foothold to make predictions about what is to come. But I think in the context of 2020 or 2021, um, that sense of anticipation was just, you know, heightened to a nauseating degree. Um, There's just a huge amount of overlapping crises. And I think the fact that the inauguration and scenes of the inauguration looked completely different to years before. You had everyone in masks, social distancing, at that point in time, 400,000. Um, Americans had died from coronavirus. There were um, barricades, the streets were deserted, the National Guard was called in. Like we had the Capitol insurrection two weeks before the inauguration. It was a tense time. The inauguration didn't look how it normally looks. And again, I think it's talking to that overlapping, uh, the overlapping crises that came about in 2020 and 2021. So the natural curiosity curiosity that we have around new governments again, was just heightened. Um, and so naturally, I guess as researchers and as people interested in US politics we're interested in having some kind of reassurance, looking for any kind of indicator to see um, what this administration will have in store. And I think when it comes to finding those indicators and to having those markers um, that make, I guess, American politics more predictable for the rest of us, Um, I once read in an Elizabeth Warren op-ed for the New York Times, although I'm sure she didn't coin the term, um, she said personnel is policy, uh, which distills the idea that the staffers um, that the president appoints and gets Senate approval, I guess, is an expression of the president himself. And, I mean, you only have to look at, I guess, um, Hillary Clinton and Obama's administration or Henry Kissinger or um, Colin Powell to see how important government staffers are to... A president and especially a president's legacy and let's not forget Biden ran for president three times so I think he's quite uh I guess concerned with his legacy and what how he will be remembered so in terms of the people he's going to install to give him advice and to uh the people he's going to entrust with a huge amount of power that's going to be a big expression of who he is and the identity of his administration and the spirit of his leadership So considering that personnel is policy, that's why I chose to look at the key players in the Biden administration in order to make predictions about what we can expect in the next 100 days and the 100 after that, and we're at about almost 150, I think, as of today. Um, So doing that report, I guess I came across three key ideas um, and three key takeaways about my impressions of what we can expect from the Biden administration. So the first is that this team is a highly experienced team. It's a highly trusted team. The second is that this, um, the administration, the advisors, the cabinet members are quite politically palatable. And the third is that it's a diverse cabinet. So I'll talk about these three observations and then hopefully we can dig into them more with a bit more discussion. And I'm excited to hear what Bruce um, has to say about his impressions of the cabinet as well. So I'll start with the first one. My first observation was that These are highly experienced and highly trusted people. The uh, Biden administration now, many of the cabinet, or the key cabinet roles at least, being confirmed with the outstanding being the the OMB. um, The cabinet members have a huge amount of experience at the top levels of law, public service, the military. You know, you have a four-star General uh, Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. Um, Janet Yellen is the first person to serve in all three of the major economic bodies. Um, These are highly, highly experienced people, and not just in their own fields and in their own right, but also in Washington. So 95% of Biden's cabinet has previous Washington experience, and that's compared with 68% of Obama's team. And of the people I profiled, 14 out of 15 of them had previous experience in another administration. And several of them actually worked next to or alongside Biden himself. So you've got Ron Claim served as Biden's chief of staff um, when he was vice president. Tony Blinken also served as the national security advisor to the vice president when Biden was vice president and Eli Ratner um, as deputy National Security Advisor at the same time, yeah. So um, these people are working alongside Biden. They have a huge sense of trust, especially uh, Ron Klain worked with Biden during um, the GFC and the uh, Recovery Act of 2009, and they delivered over 100,000 projects. Like, that is a close working relationship. So there's a huge amount of trust between Biden and his appointments. But why does that matter? I think there's two observations to make there. One is that Biden is making policy at Uh, He needs people with bureaucratic prowess who are highly experienced, who know the halls, in order to make that policy and to make that policy quickly. Um, And that's due to not only uh, the nature of the crises around the time, you know, having to implement uh, stimulus packages for the coronavirus, for example, and address the multiple crises that are unfolding in America at the moment. But it's also because Biden sees himself as a transformational president. He sees himself as an unprecedented leader in an unprecedented time. And so um, because of that, he's looking to make not only legislative change, but transformative legislative change. And he needs people that can provide sound and well-informed advice in order to make that change and for that change to be effective. Um, And I think the second thing and the second reason why it's good to have highly experienced people in your team is that uh, I guess internationally, it's reassuring for your international allies to be working with people you've worked with before. So people like John Kerry and Kurt Campbell I guess there's a sense of continuity, and that's essential. We can rebuild that international trust quite quickly. The second observation I made about the Cabinet on the whole is that the people that Biden has nominated are politically palatable. They're moderate people in both their personality and their politics. Um, They're not wed to a particular brand of democratic politics. There's no real controversial names in the mix. I think the fact that John Kerry is the only household name is quite intentional. Um, they, uh, you know, it's, it's the idea that uh, these are hardworking bureaucrats who have you know, been working in the background, getting that experience, and not so much making a name for themselves. I think that puts a spotlight on policy um, and on getting the job done, rather than infighting or the team of rivals that we saw under the Obama administration. Um, and I guess the, the level of moderation and uh, the political palatability, I guess, of the people that Biden has appointed uh, is evident. They were praised upon their appointment. Uh, you can also see in the Senate approval ratings that um, there was, on the most part, majority support for the people that Biden nominated. And even Catherine Tai had unanimous i sorry, unanimous support. So why does that matter? Again, I think there are a few things here. One is that Biden worked in the Senate for 30 years. He was vice president, or over 30 years even. He was vice president for eight. He ran for office three times. He was an incredibly experienced person. And one of the, I guess, hallmarks of his career as well was that he um, was known as a closer. And a lot of the, uh, um, and a deal maker, and a lot of the commentaries coming out, call him a negotiator in chief. It's the idea that he is a great negotiator and he gets policy over the line. And so for him to have politically agreeable people working on with him on his team helps him get that policy over the line, helps him close those deals that he needs to make in order to be a transformational president. I think as well it puts policy squarely in focus. Uh, He doesn't want his appointees to get caught up in, I guess, the politics. He's incredibly pragmatic. So by having people that can get along with other people and coalesce support for legislation um, it serves his purpose and serves the pace of policy um, that I was talking about before. I think the last thing is that Biden is truly committed to unity. Uh, he said the word unity a dizzying amount of times in his inauguration speech. Um, and so, yeah, and he, he said uh, one of the quotes, I think he said, you know, we need to end this uncivil war. And I think instead of driving a wedge between people and between Democrats and Republicans, he's instead of extending a hand by offering um, more negotiation and by having a team of people who are also open to that negotiation. Um, and on my final point uh, is that this cabinet is highly diverse. It's very hard to avoid that. It's made a lot of headlines. Um, It is a history-making cabinet and that delivers on one of Biden's key cabinet, uh, sorry, campaign promises. Um, So actually, I have some statistics. So nearly 55% of Biden's cabinet is non-white, where 18% of Trump's cabinet was non-white and 45% of Obama's was non-white and also 45% of Biden's cabinet is female compared to 18% for Trump and 36% for Obama. So I think the numbers say a lot there. Uh, It is a history-making cabinet just in terms of representation but they can't say everything and I think one of the things that we're at risk of missing by uh, just looking at the numbers is that it's not just that there's greater representation and minorities but there's a lot of firsts and a lot of firsts came out in this cabinet and Uh, In my report, I reviewed 15 people and seven of those were the first minority to hold that position, which is incredible. There's the first black secretary of defense. Um, You know, Kamala Harris is the first female vice president. You have Deb Haaland and Pete Buttigieg and Everell Haynes, all the first minorities to hold those offices. And again, why does this matter? Well, I think um, if personnel is policy, for Biden to have a diverse Personnel means that he's delivering policy for a diverse American public and that he is conscious of that. Um, Perhaps it's symbolic, but I think it might speak to um, Biden's commitment to delivering on the domestic concerns and the long-held domestic grievances that exist and permeate in America and were exacerbated throughout 2020, things like unemployment and racial injustice and gender inequality. And that's a key concern of his, and I think he's genuinely and earnestly trying to address that. And having a diverse um, cabinet is a first step for that. So just to summarise my three key takeaways from key players in the Biden administration from my report. The first is that this team is highly experienced and highly trusted by Biden. The second is that these are politically palatable moderates. And the third is that this is a diverse cabinet. Um, And, yeah, I'm looking forward to expanding on this and talking further with Bruce and hopefully getting to speculate a bit more about what, uh, these people mean not only for the U.S., but for us in Australia,
0: too. Great. Thanks so much, Victoria. So, Bruce, I would love your quick take on the the, the broad takeaways you see from the Biden, um team on the whole. Uh, we'll, we'll get into the individual folks uh, highlighted uh, very soon, but just broad take on, on what you see in on the Biden team.
1: You know, the only thing I want to add, well, there are two things. First, we know why the Australia Club will not be showing up in Washington, D.C., but secondly, um, and, and just to build on what Victoria said, um, the, uh, they also, this team, because they had performed in government, they uh, learned from what happened under Obama and previous administrations going back to Clinton. And they're determined not to make those mistakes which compromised how much each of those previous presidents could achieve. And so uh, Biden from the outset said, I'm going to go big, I'm going to go early, I'm going to go fast because he was diddled by the Republicans, which undercut the amount of the stimulus he could deliver in the great uh, financial, in the GFC, and also led to months of delays over Obamacare, which um, really hurt its popularity, leading in part part to the Tea Party revolt, which led to Democrats losing the House in the 2010 midterm elections. So they know how to improve things. So we'll see further tests uh, in the coming weeks On infrastructure, $2 trillion program, essential to rebuilding the country, connect solidly with the working class and middle class, has to be delivered. Are they gonna diddle in negotiations for weeks, frustrate achievement of the objective, have a big cost politically. The Iran nuclear deal, everyone understands, uh, the critics of it have been very um, articulate in pointing out um, some shortcomings, if not flaws in the agreement. Are they gonna be fixed as that is done? So we, so the, the, the test of this team's learning experience from previous um, uh, rounds in, in uh, Democratic administrations will be on the table. So uh, that's the fourth point I would add to Victoria's, and I think it's really really just fine. So anyway, shall we
0: proceed with a little question yeah. between us? Great, thank you. Um, I just wanted to maybe right now get down to the, the nitty gritty And one thing I want to highlight is, you know, there have been plenty of profiles of the um, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan types, but maybe if we could start with highlighting some of the key lesser known folks. Um, I think from my my perspective, someone like Brian Deese, um, the National Economic Council, he is really implementing some of these uh, really unprecedented uh, in in scope and ambition uh, plans that the Biden administration has. So Maybe if you could just give us like some names like that, Victoria, and what what you think they mean, and uh, then we can uh, continue talking from there.
1: If I may, I'd add to that list: Cecilia Rouse at OMB, Catherine Ty at USDR. So they're in, they're in power, and but we don't know very much about them.
0: Right. Yeah. So tell us more, Victoria.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, excited to. Um, I, I mean, I'll start with Brian D. So, like you said, he's the director of the um, National Economic Council, um, and I think the first thing to say about him is that one of the buzzwords surrounding his nomination was Wunderkind uh, because he has achieved so much at such a young age. Um, He first came into um, Washington at the age of 31 and assisted in the auto bailout as his first task and that's when he earned himself that title of Wunderkind um, because he did such a good job and one of the things he was credited for during the auto bailout was emphasising the human stakes of liquidating those... Um, car manufacturing companies. So um, that's been one of the, I guess, hallmarks of his contribution and uh, of the commentaries coming around is that he does emphasize human states and he is particularly inter- interested in industry change. And considering as well that in his background um, outside of Washington, he was the head of sustainable investing at BlackRock. Um, so he's very interested in uh, creating, I guess, a green economic revolution, or at least a green industrial revolution. And his experience, uh, not only at sustainable investing in BlackRock, but also negotiating the Paris Agreement, Um, and his Washington insider experience as well. He worked very closely with Obama and with Biden um, in the second term of the Obama administration um yeah they're all going to help inform for him how he navigates uh the economic advice and the economic implementation of a green sustainable revolution
0: um sorry go ahead bruce yeah i wanted to
1: ask you about another one too and it really gets to because i want to go into foreign policy a little bit but at the un we have uh linda thomas greenfield who's an exceptionally experienced diplomat but she's not very well known publicly so a little bit about her but also does this mean that the UN is going to be more important than it's been in recent years
2: yeah i mean it's a it's a good question so yeah linda thomas greenfield uh, is the US representative for the UN Uh, and like you said she does she has a a huge amount of experience as a diplomat especially in Africa Um, and during that time actually one of my favorite fun facts about Linda Thomas Greenfield is that she coined this term gumbo diplomacy um, because she you know used her Louisiana roots in order to I was going to say break people down, but I think that sounds too harsh for Linda Thomas Greenfield. I think she did it to, I guess, bring down people's walls and make people feel comfortable. And the way that she can, de- oh, sorry, Bruce, what were you saying?
1: You can eat gumbo and talk turkey. You're going to get deals on the farm uh, on international issues. That's the deal. That's it.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that was her logic too. So that's, you know, how she conducted her diplomacy. Um, and so I guess one of the dominant criticisms about her appointment was, well, she's not gonna to be tough enough on China. And um, and that's already in the first 100 days, she delivered a speech um, to the UN on the day of elimination of racial discrimination, where she did criticize the US and the US uh, original sin of slavery. And uh, yeah, she copped a huge amount of criticism for that, especially from Republicans, who are already concerned that she's not going to be tough enough on China and aren't too happy that she'll criticise the US's racial, uh, I guess, uh, history of racial discrimination. So, um, yeah, I I guess uh, to answer your question on does this mean that the US is going to return to the UN, I think it does. Uh, If you rifle through the archives of Foreign Affairs magazine, she did write an article in 2017 that was really uh, vociferously critical of um, Trump and uh, how he had abandoned multilateral institutions like the UN. So I imagine that under Biden, um, yeah, the US will probably have a, a a greater presence than the previous administration.
1: I do think that point about uh, the diplomats of the United States being candid on uh, the the, uh, shortcomings of American democracy at this time are very important. And both Sullivan and Blinken have um, talked quite candidly about the need to talk candidly about them in order to show the world, which, which will make, hey, Putin, in the press conference today, he attacks the murder of George Floyd, and he says, yeah, Black Lives Matter, and this leads to unrest in the country. And so what do you expect? You're not such a great democracy. So t- the, a- the antidote to that is to say, we are dealing with this because we know it, and we still want to get to a much better place than any of these authoritarian regimes are going to deliver. So I think that was, I think you're right. Um, and, but staying with foreign policy for a little bit and coming off the summit, you know Biden said the proof is in the pudding on 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 uh, on Putin, but the proof is in the pudding on this team that you have described so well. So how have we seen this team perform at the G seven, NATO, and with Putin over the past week? What are your impressions of them and how they're operating?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where. I think the administration is continuing to prove itself Um, and you know the more time moves on the more we have a better impression of not only what we can expect from this administration but um, I guess what we can expect from Biden's presidency on the whole. Um, And so to come to your question about Europe, uh, I think, and even maybe more of a reflection in the last uh, 150 days uh, with this summit being kind of a a pinnacle of it all, um, is that Uh, Yeah, I think the foreign affairs players, they want to return to a rules-based order. They want to return to stability and predictability. Uh, I think they, they have put a huge amount of emphasis on alliance on alliances and shoring up alliances and I mean that's great news for Australia um but they they have and they they've they're also tactfully firm I would say so it's not the hands-off approach we saw in the previous administration but there is I guess a sense of firmness and strength that's coming across and um but one of the things that he said in reflection of his meeting with Putin was, you know, this is all within our self-interest and he often talks about naked self-interest and that's kind of his demonstration of strength. And while they're active in foreign affairs and they're active in these multilateral institutions, I think they're also cautious of overreach. Um, I think there's like kind of a, a tension there where they are rebuilding their international image and rehabilitating their international image and becoming more involved in multilateral institutions and multilateral dialogue, but at the same time cautious to, um, yeah, I guess, uh, keep the affairs and interests back home domestically in the forefront of their minds as well.
1: I'm curious about, um, your sense of their bandwidth, um, in two respects. Uh, they are dealing with a lot of world issues. I mean, just moving from the G7 to NATO to the EU is huge, and then Putin, and then you have China, and then things erupt between Israel and Gaza, and dealing with that. Do they have the bandwidth to deal with that, that number one? And then number two, uh, they've wanted clearly to show that China is the number one issue. Yes, what are the top four or five issues? It's China, it's Russia, it's Iran, North Korea, and then uh, economic and other security stuff. So they wanted to, you know, China being the top priority, do they have the bandwidth to um, make China uh, the uh, prime priority for US foreign policy and get the attention? Are they going to be dragged back down into Europe and the Middle East? Are they going to have primacy with China?
2: Yeah, I mean, that is the question, and it's one of those things where only time will tell. I think the intention's there in a way that perhaps it wasn't there before. I, You know, if you look just numerically at the number of national security staff that are China hawks and that are, huge, like, very concerned with China, um, it's a, you know, in number, it's only ever been uh, comparable to a Middle East focus. So I guess there is a very intentional pivot to China and pivot to Asia in um, Biden's national security, foreign policy priorities and strategic priorities. Um, in, in terms of can they not get distracted, I think that's a, a a question where truly only time will tell. But I think Biden may have survived his first test with Gaza earlier in May. Uh, you know, and potentially, I would add, I mean, China, I think, is a, definitely one of uh, the administration's top priorities. It is indisputable. Um, but I think... And, it's rivaled with uh, what I think is baked into the administration, which is a foreign policy for the middle class, which is that idea that you know you measure the the value and the importance of foreign. Uh, issues in foreign affairs by the impact or the tangible impact they will have for Americans back home. And I think that's, again, reflective of the context of the coronavirus and the Capitol Hill And You know, America is deeply bruised and there's a huge amount of division that requires attention. And so as much as Biden does need to act, act and interact internationally, I think there's also a big emphasis amongst the administration to take care of issues at home. And can the, he survive those tests of overseas issues and, I guess, the the palpable draw of the Middle East, in the case of Gaza, um, and Israel especially. I guess time will tell, but I think the intention and the fervor of um, yeah, his dedication to that uh, is there. Yeah.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I also think what we saw with um, in the lead up to the Putin summit today, we're going to see with China. In other words, there's a roll-up of all the allies coming together under American leadership, with a common agenda, common objectives, common priorities, and bringing those to Putin through Biden. And I think we will see the same choreography in the lead up to a China summit, which I'm almost sure will occur this year. Could easily occur around the UN General Assembly, as has been traditional settings, maybe earlier. But I believe you'll see this repetition of Biden meeting with all the allies. So he already had the Quad. He'll meet with them again. The relationship with Australia, I'll get to that in a moment. And then what you're bringing to to the China discussion is well, it's not just Trump versus Xi, U.S.-China trade war. It's it's Biden leaving uh, the the allies, the democracies, and the capitalist economies uh, to China to work out. Okay, what are the rules of engagement with you? So I think that's I think that's what we're going to see come out. It's a good playbook, and I think it worked today, and I think he wants to make it work tomorrow with uh, China, but. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, uh, in that context, I really want to turn to Australia and this team. The overall message so far to Australia has been, we have an unbreakable alliance. That's uh, Tony Blinken said that. And Kirk Campbell, of course, uh, the dear friend of this country, said, we will not leave you on the playing field. So how do you see this team's interactions with Australia, the depth of it, and where it can go in, the, uh, in this presidency?
2: Yeah, I mean that's the million dollar question I think and it's what we're at the center we're working towards thinking about is, you know, what does this administration truly mean for Australia? I think there's a couple of indicators. I think one of them again is the fact that he is stocking his national security team with China hawks and people that are concerned with where uh, oh, I mean, uh, the, the rise of China and competing with China. And I think as well as we've been touching on, there's a, hu- uh, a much bigger emphasis on working multilaterally with other countries and especially with alliances. And like you were saying, there's a strategy in going to uh, the G7 and NATO before meeting with Putin and perhaps we'll see that again um, with China. Uh, and you know, as it's already been happening, I think um, I think it was Kathleen Hicks, who's the deputy uh, secretary of defense, um, has said, and and Ela Ratner as well, that you know, in order to our one asymmetric advantage as the U.S. when it comes to China is that we have alliances that China doesn't. And so I think there are strength, there is a huge amount of strength in those alliances, and especially the U.S.'s alliance with Australia. And so in terms of uh, helping us cope with China and with Uh, economic coercion. How you know how is the U.S. going to interact and assist us? Well, you're right. Like there's a lot of rhetorical focus. Actually, I have a good quote from Sullivan, um, which he said at the Anchorage summit. Which I mean, notoriously, I think one of the takeaways was that there was way more uh, sparring um, over you know a bit of tit for tat. Like, well, you have these human rights abuses. Oh, well, you have these. I'm like, so I think there was a, a lot of that uh, verbal warfare, if anything. Um, but at that summit, or after that summit, Sullivan said. Um, The Australian people have made great sacrifices to protect freedom and democracy around the world. As we have for a century, America will stand shoulder to shoulder with our ally and with uh, and rally fellow democracies to advance our shared security, prosperity and values. I mean, that's quite telling. Uh, I think the sentiment and the cushiness is there. But there's also tension. And one of those key points of tension is climate change. Um, and the fact that Australia is a bit of a laggard on climate change and we've been called out for that. Um, John Kerry, the US Presidential Envoy for Climate Change, has said, "Oh, well, I mean, it's quite passive, but he did say all those differences. And we have been, uh, I guess, poked and prodded to adopt more ambitious climate targets. And perhaps that'll be a point of tension um, in our alliance. But uh, in terms of China, I think, uh, yeah, the intention and, at least the rhetorical focus on supporting one another and supporting allies is is there.
1: Yeah, I agree, and uh, but with uh, Kerry, I mean, uh, I've been saying for some time, uh, there's nothing that Prime Minister Morrison can say that'll stop John Kerry from taking a quicker step. Nothing, and so mm-hmm. then the question is, how difficult do you think uh, Kerry and the president are going to make are going to make it for Australia, as long as we're short of the objective goals that have been set by every other Western ally.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, I, yeah, I, it's it's a good question. I think, in some ways, I think there's a lot of huffing and puffing, but in terms of actual damage, there's not that much there. So for example, like a, a carbon border adjustment tax would be quite punishing for Australia. Um, but those I guess international market forces aren't being pushed for by the US Trade Representative Catherine Tai or um, John Kerry, for example, in fact, he called that the last resort. And same with an international uh, emissions cap and trade system. Again, it's something Kerry has called the last resort. Um, and so I think there is a lot of huffing and puffing, but in terms of actually incentivizing Australia to adopt more ambitious targets or uh, punishing Australia for not adopting more ambitious targets, it doesn't really seem to be there. Um, so I, I get time will tell, uh, but uh, as for now, at least, I don't think that, um, yeah, it'll damage our reputation. Like, you know, I think, yeah, we're, we're an important alliance and I don't know if uh, inaction on climate change is enough to wear us down.
1: Uh, I agree with you. I find it very hard to believe that um, President Biden would embarrass Prime Minister Morrison in, in any direct way on Australia's climate policy. That it, that's mm-hmm. not the person that he is. That's not how he operates. So I do think, you know, I don't think there's any threat at all to the relationship. I think this is a question. I think I think what, what Biden says to Morrison is, well, you figure it out. This is your problem. This is where we're going. So you just figure it out. Yeah, and exactly. We'll figure it out. So
2: mm. it I, seems a bit more like, yeah, it's, it's more of a, a, like, and perhaps even mimicking the rhetoric from um, the Putin summit is something Biden was like, you know, we're trying to help you help yourself, you know, that kind of like we're establishing rules and like, you know, we're help, we're guiding you towards helping yourself. I think it's the same approach with Australia. It's like they're moving uh, key industries towards renewable energy. And I think Biden's like, oh, come on, we don't we don't want you to miss the boat. Like, you know, you come along too, but it's ultimately on you to make that decision.
1: Yeah. Um, just turning back to COVID, you know, for a moment, um, uh, the, the you just have to be impressed uh, at coming off the disaster of 2020. The recovery of 2021 and the vaccination program and how effective it is. I mean, um, how has this affected has this affected us America's international standing and approval rating and what message does this send to Australia. um, As you look as you see it.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're completely right. Like, you you have to be impressed. The turnaround is so immense. And that's perhaps one of the surprising things about time at the moment is, you know, it has been less than 150 days since Biden came to office, but the change, and especially the change with coronavirus, is just, you know, unbelievable. I I actually, um, in our center-wide newsletter, um, our uh, uh, resident data analyst found that 60% uh, of Uh, The American public approves of how Biden has handled the pandemic, which is higher than his overall approval rating. So it seems like, you know, his handling of coronavirus is actually driving his approval at home, but overseas as well. It's, I think the change in the reception to America is dramatic. And I think there are, the Pew Research Institute has released Um, statistics, I think, Uh, looking at how America has been received overseas and how Biden has helped rehabilitate, I guess, the credibility of America. And, I, you know, the death toll surpassed 600,000 deaths from coronavirus this week. Um, But in terms of slowdown, that's a much slower pace than it was last year. So I think, yeah, he's doing wonders in terms of rehabilitating his international image. And I, I think another important thing that he's done as part of his uh, you know, not just, uh, I guess, facilitate a successful vaccine rollout, but he's also really stressed the importance of reinstating science and listening to science and listening to experts. And I think, uh, you know, to bring it back to key players in the Biden administration, um, I think his chief of staff, Ron Claim, you know, he was the Ebola czar uh, in 2014 to handle the um, Ebola virus um, outbreak. And I think he's been quite instrumental in pushing for, you know, let's defer to experts, let's defer to experts, let's defer to the science. And that's been um, very instrumental in, I guess, yeah, like uh, rehabilitating the um, credibility of America in its pandemic response.
1: Great. Uh, Two more questions before we get to uh, comments from our audience. Uh, First, the vice president. Um, How has the team worked with her and integrated her into the work of the president and uh, the responsibility she's been given? And um, and how effective that is how effective that is working. So your impressions on that would be most helpful.
2: Yeah, again, a very good question. I think um, I find this dynamic really interesting considering that Biden was a vice president himself for eight years. Um, and something that he's done, or at least popular commentaries have jumped on that he's done, is he's kind of handled all the really difficult tasks, um, the the border crisis in the south, um, you know, as, as as one of those examples, you know, I I do find the the dynamic interesting in how uh, I guess yeah she's she's been asked to deal with some very uh, touchy and difficult issues. Um, I think in terms of how they've integrated her, she's instrumental. I mean, the whole way through the campaign, it was the Biden-Harris campaign, you know, Biden-Harris, Biden-Harris. And I think that, uh, you know, yeah, she plays a very important uh, symbolic role as well. Um, in terms of, and you know, I talked about diversity before, but I think it's hard to understate how that has led to a real shift in, you know, perhaps even the mainstream media that they go to first to provide comments, and the way that um, the way that she's approached policy. Um, I think she's doing that with a real um, reflection on her lived experience as a woman and a woman of colour. And, you know, when she's dealing with difficult and sticky issues that are really touch sensitive, um, for her to be, uh, yeah, in that role is helpful, I think, because it makes her more cognizant or uh, considerate of how those dynamics are playing out in those conflicts. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, I'd be interested for your two cents on that, actually, Bruce. What do you, what do you think?
1: Well, from the beginning, I've been. Uh, I thought it's been very interesting. She's at every meeting, at his side, in every public presentation. Um, she is the last person in the room by uh, statements that both of them have made before, like the Afghanistan decision, are made. And um, uh, and I think you're right that um, he has. Uh, it is the president's prerogative as to what to give to the vice president. And he said, "Okay." I think she really wanted voting rights. Uh, if you look at her, mm-hmm. absolutely central to uh, her, what she cares about. Um, a hell of a lot uh, on uh, the border. No one wants the border, <laughs> but, it, but it, it is a, sure it's a test, but it, it's a job that has to be done and she's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the question will be over time, are they going to have a, re- a really close relationship? I felt that Obama and Biden had a very close relationship. And I think um, she has the p- absolute potential to have that with President Biden. Uh, so it will not be uh, Kennedy and Johnson, and it will not be Nixon and Agnew, and it will not be. So I, Trump I, and Pence. All the, yeah. all the potentials there, and I, I don't sense any jealousies from the staff at all. In other words, where the the president's staff is out to outrun or get the vice president's staff, so far, yeah, so good.
2: Yeah, what? that's exactly right. I mean, sorry, sorry to interrupt. But yeah, no, I think that is one of the big points of contrast is that Obama did have a team of rivals. And a lot of Biden's team was on that team of rivals. But I think the, the shift is different. The priority is different. The focus is let's churn out policy. Let's churn out good policy it's fast. Good.
1: That's yeah, right. that's exactly. Um, last question before some comments. Uh, let's talk about the culture, your impressions of the culture of the Biden shop. Why is this team so disciplined? I mean, they are, you know, there are no leaks. Uh, They are loyal. There is not a bad word that comes out from uh, those around the president. There's nothing like what, well, I mean, Trump is in a world of his own, but there's nothing that that, like has happened in previous administrations. They, They seem very professional, happy, doing their jobs, loyal to the president, executing. I mean, if you, you know, just look at the press, I've been following the press briefings on this trip and uh how Jen Psaki operates and comports herself it's really something so mm-hmm. what are your impressions of it and why that is and do you see any problems arising from this the culture of the staff
2: yeah I mean why is it that why is that the case well I mean like. Maybe two things. I think one is they can't afford it. They can't afford the, you know, the slips and um, any kind of extra fanfare. They they really truly have a job. You know, I can't emphasize enough the crisis. They have a job to do. They need to churn out policy. And I think that's a a position that's championed by Biden. Is that he, you know, doesn't he doesn't need the attention to be on the people. He needs it to be on the policies. And he needs the people, the American people, rather to trust that he can implement good policy and that it's to, I guess, restore stability and to not have another crisis be a crisis on the Hill, you know, he needs, or a crisis in the White House, he needs um, as much stability as possible. Um, And, you know, I think the other thing is that he has just been so intentional in who he has appointed. Like I said, he has appointed incredibly moderate people, both in personality and in policy. Um, And I think, like, even you can look at the example of um, Neera Tandon, who... Uh, was, uh, you know, nominated for the OMB and didn't receive the position. Um, You know, I think because she was potentially like too politically flammable. And you you see as well the appointment of um, Lloyd Austin as well. That was quite controversial because a lot of people thought that that was going to go to Michelle Flournoy, but it didn't. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Austin toes are much more moderate, uh, a much less... um, like ASE is less public facing um, and uh, potentially a little bit, uh, yeah, you know, uh, my point being that uh, he's handpicked moderate people in order to avoid that. Uh, and so that they can pull out policy and pull it out fast. Okay.
1: Uh, Jared, happy to open up the discussion to yeah. A-
0: we have, um, we have a few questions that the audience have submitted. Um, one is from uh, a friend of the Center's, Jim Orchard. He asks, the Biden team is described as professional experience impalpable to other experienced professionals. How palatable are they to younger demographics who increasingly seem to be rejecting elements of the democratic status quo? And I definitely want to hear Victoria as well as Bruce as a uh, former Democratic staffer and every political party is always trying to appeal to the younger demographic. So love some inside baseball on that from you, Bruce, as well.
1: Uh, I'm going to yield to Victoria on that one first.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, it's the I mean, as a young person, how do you make politics cool to us? I I don't know. Um, I mean, to be fair. And, I mean, this is completely off the cuff, but, I mean, if you look at how young people interact with social media and the social media that was coming out around the time of the election, a huge draw card was the fact that uh, Biden had elect or appointed a diverse cabinet. Uh, it was really, I mean, at least among the more progressive wing of younger people, it was a really celebrated feature. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, how do you make it? I, maybe what it is is that it's, um, although I was going to say that it's it symbol, I think this is potentially quite a moderate democratic, um, a, a moderate uh, administ- a democratic administration. Um, so what is it that appeals to young people? I, I'm not too sure. I think, I think maybe it's just uh, the idea that um, Biden cares about the home front. And that um, young people are part of that home front, and that he is promising to deliver on things like jobs. And uh, there's conversations happening around the minimum wage, and uh, you know the cost of education, the cost of living, and perhaps they. And oh my gosh, how could I forget climate change um, being one of the things that young people are particularly concerned about? Uh, and he is promising to deliver on those things, and perhaps then young people feel catered for um, by this administration. So I'm not sure.
1: I think, um, you know, we've had younger presidents who had real appeal in cultural terms with uh, younger Americans. So with Kennedy and Obama in particular, you had Hollywood, you had music stars and so forth, and how they use that. And Obama, I thought, broke broke barriers with social media and tying cultural icons into his, the aura around him. Uh, But the country has been through terrible trauma. 600,000 dead of young people, many of their uncles and aunts and grandparents died and others sick. And there's been a profound change in work, a profound change in outlook, in the economy. And so as long as Uncle Joe is delivering the opportunities for their generation, then I think there's hope and trust. So I think it it can either be cemented or it can go bust. And, and that's why the next year is really, really crucial. But I, I won't pretend to be a spokesperson for anyone under 30, maybe even 50, but that's <laughs> it.
0: You can always be a great spokesperson. I for wear IVA
1: glasses once in a while, okay?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, another question now we have from Jason Lim, and he asked about um, the Anchorage Summit that we saw earlier this year, where the uh, Chinese state Counselor. Uh, Yang Jiechi told Secretary of State Blinken that the U.S. no longer has the authority to tell off other countries, and um, that China does not play the same game, something to that effect. And then he, uh, Jason, wants to know if there's a need to rethink U.S. diplomacy um, in, in regards to, especially with China. But I think, I think that, that that question has already been answered. That 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 Biden does want to rethink U.S. diplomacy, from my own perspective. But I'd love to hear. How you two think that Biden's diplomacy differs, and, and especially in terms of the key personnel and how that diplomacy has differed, not only from Trump, which I think is pretty obvious, but also from the Obama administration. As, as Victoria, you highlighted, they all most of them served in the Obama administration at one point. So how are things different in how they're going about diplomacy?
2: Hmm. Uh, I, think I, I think the first thing I'd say on this is that a line that's getting thrown around when it comes to diplomacy quite a lot is a humble re-entry. And I think we touched on that a little bit by saying that, you know, the America, American diplomats are being a bit more self-critical and trying to, I guess, pour a bit of water over the criticisms that could come about um, from other countries saying, hey, like, look in your own backyard, you've still got issues to work on. Um, And my second point on that is that I think America is looking in its own backyard a lot more and that that's completely changed its approach to diplomacy. It is measured now by the impact it will have on uh, domestic issues at home um, and the the crises unfolding at home. Um, Yeah, I think that's probably where diplomacy is heading under the administration, other than its obvious preeminent return. Um, I don't know, Bruce, what what do you think?
0: No, I think it, uh, it covers it exactly, exactly right. Great. Um, another question we have is from James Chen, um, who makes a very interesting uh, uh, point. He says, what do you make of the critique that the administration's handpicking of moderates is indicative of its unwillingness to work towards lasting substantive change? I think there's an interesting premise to that question, but I'd love to hear what the two of you think on that one.
1: Oh, I'd like to come out on that first. Um, if the packaging is different, but the substance is really far to the left of anything that's been presented by a Democratic president since Franklin Roosevelt. So uh, don't let uh, a kindly seventy-eight-year-old gentleman, you know, fool you. And uh, and the Republicans will certainly go after the radical socialist Biden agenda. But the but the reason why it's worked, and it is. I mean, the what was passed in the uh, stimulus pandemic package on. Uh, middle-class income security and child payments uh, unprecedented, and it will reduce child poverty by 50%. In one stroke, you know, that this has happened so quickly. And uh, the ambitions on climate and so forth are the same. So uh, what w- and why it's working is people understand it was the pandemic that opened up the, the Pandora's box of what is so fundamentally wrong with the country, and this is the chance to fix it. Because we all agree this is a problem. That's where the political... Um, benefits are coming in of, you know, 60, 65, 70% support for the substance of the program. Just take the politics out of it. And so it's meeting a need. Everyone understands they're half a step away from catastrophe on health. They're, they're, the infrastructure around them is not working. They do not have affordable broadband. The schools are falling apart and they're living in a polluted environment. I mean, in Texas, when there's a storm and it knocks out the electrical grid and people have to melt snow to flush their toilets in texas i mean give me a break so <laughs> I mean, and that people get it and, and and that's why it's working
2: yeah i i think i'd agree on that i think it is packaged differently i think it is packaged and potentially i've assisted in packaging it this way that it is that there's moderate people um but i don't think the i don't think the ambitions uh are, uh are, are, um placating like i think i think they're uh, like I said at the beginning, Biden does see himself as a truly transformative president, and he does echo a lot of FDR, who did have radical, transformative change and substantive change uh, that shaped America how it is now. Um, so yeah, I think I think again, like there's a lot of negotiations happening, especially around the infrastructure plan at the moment. Um, but in terms of how much of that is just extending an arm over the, I don't want you know bridge. Pun intended uh, to you know to the Republicans um, and to say like we're including you on this. I don't think it's watered down the ambitions and the quite wide interpretation of infrastructure that does have quite a progressive tone to it. Considering that you know care infrastructure is considered as part of the of, as part of the infrastructure plan and broad based. Um, climate action, uh, you know, electric car vehicles, station charging things, and solar pa- like installing installing solar panels and installing broadband. A lot of this is progressive, actual transformative change. And once you start putting electric vehicle charging stations in the ground, they're very hard to rip up. So I think that even uh, packaging the infrastructure plan and packaging. Um, controversial policy like climate policy through infrastructure makes it really difficult to reverse. So that this is substantive transformative change, even if it requires negotiation to get there. That's and great.
0: They were, Sorry, they, Bruce.
1: you're advocating social nationalizing industries in the country, that would be truly radical anti-capitalist agenda. Mm-hmm. And they know. Even with all the things that are going in their way, that there's a likelihood that the Congress, certainly the House of representatives, would go will go Republican next year. The Senate, actually, I think the Democrats are going to pick up a seat or two, but oh. they'll lose control. They'll lose control of the Congress, and so the they're going to get as much done as they can now. This is the urgency, and uh, and they know they have really until the end of the year to bank these uh, super programs that they proposed to the Congress, and that's gonna be the test. And then they'll just take it and run
0: with, and run on it. Great, thank you so much. Um, unfortunately, we are running out of time. Um, and so I'll just ask one, five, one, one question that I, hopefully I can get a five second answer from both of you. Who is one or two cabinet members that maybe we haven't mentioned today that you think um, our, our viewers should pay attention to over the next uh, 100 days or more? I'll start with you, Victoria.
2: Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I actually think someone that we should pay more attention to is Brian Davis. Uh, I think his emphasis on sustainable uh, development and what that'll mean for conversations like infrastructure is going to be really important. So I'd be, you know, keeping a close watch on him.
0: Perfect. And Bruce.
1: Uh, The Secretary of the Interior, the first uh, Native American woman to uh, assume that uh, office, is great, and and I think we have to pay more attention. The Secretary
0: of Defense has been quiet, but you know, is sort of is there. So great,
1: plenty of talent here.
0: Thank you so much. We are at the top of the hour, so I will have to close this up for now. Um, This has been a fantastic uh, conversation. And we are going to have another webinar uh, this month. On the 29th of June, we are going to have another edition of the NATO Expert Talk Series, Outcomes of the NATO-Brussels Summit with the NATO Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Political Affairs and Security Policy. And uh, they will be joining uh, the U.S.'s own um, expert, uh, Grana, who is in Rome uh, this year. Um, Fortunately for her, unfortunately for us at the uh, U.S. Studies Center. Um, And then I also want to just close out and thank the team supporting us today, including um, Sarah, uh, Janine, Mari, Suze, and Taylor, who uh, make these webinars run so smoothly, and this would not have been possible without their help. Thanks so much, everyone, and see you later this month.